0: I'm curious. Does anyone remember an old comic uh, cartoon strip called The Far Side? Do you guys remember The Far Side? Like, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, it must be nice being young. Um, so just Google The Far Side sometime. Enjoy going down that rabbit hole. I think you'll I think you'll love it. Uh, it was kind of an offbeat, quirky, very creative. I thought very funny at times, kind of brilliant uh, cartoon strip. And I've been thinking about one from years ago that I that, that just kind of got stuck in my memory. The re- Let me show it to you. I think it's funny. You're not going to think it's funny. Like, just like lower the expectations. But here it is right here. You got this guy. He's using a, a handgun like a hammer. And this guy says, So they tell me you're pretty handy with a gun. I told you it's not, it's not super funny. But I've been th- the reason I've been thinking about this, the reason I've been thinking about this is because I've been thinking about the subject of purpose this week. And this guy right here just doesn't know what that's for, doesn't understand the purpose of it. Let me ask you a question. Do you know why? Do you know why some churches just buckle under the pressure when things get hard, and then other churches seem to only get stronger? Do you know why some people seem to thrive even when they're facing adversity, and other people just kind of get stuck in the ups and downs of life? It's not intelligence. It's not about who's smarter. It's not even about resources. It's not who has better resources, who has more resources. Those things are intelligence, wealth, resources. All the things are important, but they're not the dominant factor. The dominant factor is purpose. Do you know your purpose? Do you know your why? Do you know what you exist for? Do you know what we exist for? When people, when individuals, when they know their why, they know their purpose— they seem just to be able to face whatever it is that's in front of them and not just face it, but are able to thrive. It works that way with individuals. It works that way with churches too. We're in this, excuse me, we're in this series, Dear Church. Um, this is the last installment of the seven-week series. We've looked at seven different personalized messages from Jesus to seven distinct churches. All of these churches, excuse me, all of these letters are contained in Revelation chapter two and three. Um, And Revelation, we call it like a book in the New Testament. It was originally a letter written by a guy named John. He was given this message from Jesus. He shared it with these churches. So all of these churches, they receive this and they're reading Jesus' personalized message to them and to each other. And when you take all of these messages together, these seven different letters, we see Jesus' heart for churches, we see his mindset towards these churches that he loves. And while all the letters are distinct and a bit different, there's one thing that they all have in common. Every letter has this exact same line in it. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the last line in the letter we're going to read today. If you have ears to hear, hear, which is not just about receiving information, it's about responding to it. And so we've taken this and we've created a thesis for this series. It's been our anthem each week, which is this. Knowing the truth doesn't change anything. Submitting to the truth changes everything. And if I could just share my opinion with you, I think that it is unfortunate that this word has gotten a bad rap. Like, I don't know that it's considered a compliment when you say someone is submissive. I don't know if people like being thought of as submissive. I don't know if any of you out there like the word submit, but this is a great word. Because people who are submissive are people who are able to be persuaded. And that is a necessary condition to be able to learn. People who are submissive are people who are able to be in healthy friendships. People who are submissive are people who are able to downgrade or downshift their personal agenda so that they can connect with and be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. We could say it like this. If we want to be people who know our purpose and live for our purpose and align our lives around our purpose, well, we have to be people who adopt and cultivate a disposition of submission. And I think it's one of the reasons that Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's not just just knowing it, but it's submitting. When we submit to the truth, that's when we find freedom. And we don't live our lives above truth. It's not like some obstacle that we live above that we got to get over and get past. Real life, real joy, true freedom is found living underneath the authority of truth. And so today, I'm going to say something I'm going to say something in just a couple of seconds and for some of you guys you're going to think I don't know that feels like you're being a little too slick there I'm going to say something and you might feel like it's a philosophical card trick or a philosophical sleight of hand just just hang with me if you need to go back and watch this message again online and think about it that's fine there's no pressure today and so this is this is what I want to share the first part is this. The first part's easy. If you want to know and find your purpose, you've got to submit to truth. If you want to know and find your purpose and live for that, you have to submit to truth. So here it is. Are you ready? If you reject that or resist that in any way, you're admitting your purpose in life is fraudulent. If you, if you want to know your purpose and live for your purpose, you have to submit to truth. But if you reject that or resist that in any way, you are admitting That your life, the purpose of your life is fraudulent. It's pretend. Why would I say that? If truth isn't necessary, if truth isn't included, if truth is not the foundation, if it's not underneath the banner of truth, then it's not true. Your purpose isn't true. It's disconnected from truth. And why do we call things that aren't true? We say those things, we call them a lie. We say they're fiction. We say they're pretend. And when it's about something important, we'll say... It's fraudulent. And I get it. People could respond and say, but Rick, what's the big deal whether truth is involved or not? Can't people just live however they want? I mean, a lot of people feel that way. Just take whatever approach to life you want, live for whatever purpose you want. As long as you're happy and you feel good about it, that's all that matters. Super compelling. I get the appeal of that. Maybe, maybe that's the way most people live. And if I'm talking about you, I, I'm not trying to judge you. I don't want to judge you. I just want to ask, how's it working? Does it work? How's it working for this guy? You can take whatever approach you want. You can drive straight in. You can back in. It's the same way in life. You can take whatever approach you want. You're free to do that. You and I, we are free. We're totally free to take whatever approach to life we want. Here's where we're not free. We're not free from the consequences that come from ignoring truth. We're free to do whatever we want, to live whatever way we want. We're not free from the consequences of ignoring truth. Ultimately, reality wins. In the game of life, reality is undefeated. And so we should be asking ourselves this question. What is reality? When it comes to the purpose of my life, what I exist for, my why, what is truth? What's the truth? Probably one of my favorite, just like most vulnerable, candid, honest responses to this comes from a, a long-dead Russian novelist named Leo Tolstoy. We're going to look at what he has to say. Let me just settle down, ladies. Don't act like you've never seen a handsome man before. The <laughs> wrestling with this question of, why am I here? What is my life for? It's kind of a long quote, but man, it is gripping. It's compelling. This is what, this is what he had to say. He said, the question brought me to the edge of the abyss. When I was 50 years old, and the question is this, what will, what will come of what I do today and tomorrow? What will come of my entire life? Or express differently, why should I live? Why should I wish for anything or do anything? Or to put it another way, is there any meaning in my life that will not be destroyed by my inevitably approaching death? My deeds, whatever they may be, will be forgotten sooner or later and I myself will be no more. Why then do anything? I therefore could not attach a rational meaning to a single act of my entire life. The only thing that amazed me was how I had failed to realize this from the beginning. How could anyone fail to see this? That's what's amazing. It's possible to live as long as life intoxicates us, but once we are sober, we cannot help but seeing that it is all a delusion. There's nothing funny or witty about it all. It's only cruel and stupid. It's possible to skip past it, to ignore it, to suppress the question of really what is my life about? As long as life is intoxicating us, but as soon as we become clear, man, it is urgent. And it's just not funny. There's nothing funny about it. They don't know what their life's about. They don't know what they should do. They don't know what their purpose is. They don't know where their value comes from. That's not funny. I agree with Tolstoy. It is cruel and stupid for someone to have to live that way. And not just individuals, it is cruel and stupid for a church to live that way, to not know what they are about, to not know their why, to not know why they exist. And this is at the heart of the final letter we're gonna read from Jesus to this church today. A church in the city of Laodicea. So I'd love for you to grab your Bible, grab a phone. Either one is fine, one's not better than the other. We're gonna look at this passage. It's a letter from Jesus to a network of house churches in the city of Laodicea. We're going to read Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Now this letter, like the previous letters we've read, it has some imagery, it has some symbolism in it, but I think this is pretty accessible. I don't think you're going to need me to break it down and and go through it one one by one. I think you're just going to get it. There might be one that needs a little bit of clarity, and we'll do that uh, together. And here's, let me just give you a heads up. This is, the, this is what we're going to read. This is a letter to a church that has lost the plot. I don't know what they're about. They've given away their purpose and they've, in exchange, taken on a fraudulent one. Thus, this letter that flows out of the heart of Jesus to this church that he loves. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right. These are the words of the amen, and that means... The one who keeps his promises. We just sang a song about Jesus being the promise keeper. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. Remember what that means? I see you. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see." Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, to the one who endures in faith, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Do you know this? You read Genesis chapter 1, when God made people, he made people to rule and reign with him. If you skip to the end, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we're going to rule and reign with him forever. Jesus wants to include us in his life and what he is about. And that should be motivation for us. It should be a delight for us. And he says this, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each week, there has been a man, I did not see that coming, kind of unexpected message that each church heard and I would imagine like if you showed up on a Sunday morning at the church in Laodicea and someone said, hey, we got a new message here and someone read that, you'd be like, why did I come to church today? This is rough. So we're going to cover what the unexpected message is in just a second. But first, let me recap all the unexpected messages we've had so far. In week one, we learned it's better to have no church than an unloving church. That's still, it stops me in my tracks every time I think about that, every time I say that out loud. And that's Jesus' perspective. Love is so important. Lovelessness is so devastating. It's better to have no church than an unloving church. And week two, we learned sometimes it's better to let a church suffer than to prevent it. And for some reason, God has chosen to use hardship in our life. And you're wondering why. I want to share with you a perspective from a missionary, a woman who knew suffering and hardship. Her name was Elizabeth Elliott. She once said this. God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. In week three, we learned it's possible for a church to stand up for Jesus while standing against Jesus. Maybe that kind of helps understand what's going on in churches across our country today. We've learned it's possible for a church to wrongly value staying together over staying faithful. Our unity isn't just in our proximity to each other. Our unity is in Christ and following Him and being faithful to Him. We learned that it's possible for everybody but Jesus to be convinced that a church is alive and well. Last week we learned that a church may be strongest when it's weak because it's depending on Jesus. And this is our unexpected message this week to the church in Laodicea. It's possible for a church to be physically rich but spiritually bankrupt. There is nothing wrong with this right here. Being rich is not the problem. Being spiritually bankrupt, that's the problem, right? This isn't wrong. This isn't the problem. But if we don't understand the relationship between these two, and there is a relationship between these two, if we don't know that relationship, we might find ourselves in a problem too. So let's look at what Jesus said, verses 15 and 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm curious, how many of you have ever heard this explained this way? Be all the way excited and on fire for God or be all the way against them, but don't just kind of be on the fence in the middle. Has anyone ever heard that? Right? If you were like me and you were a 90s youth group kid, you heard that. It seems like every youth pastor in America taught that. Small problem, it's not what it means. In our culture, in our language, we have a colloquialism. We have an expression, lukewarm. It's like noncommittal. You're yes, you're no. You're hot, you're cold, you're in, you're out. Jesus is not accusing them of being a Katy Perry song. That's not what's going on, right? This is about purposelessness. It's about not knowing their purpose and not living up to their purpose. The city of Laodicea did not have a water source. Big problem. Major disadvantage for, for any city. They didn't have a water source. There was water up in the mountains, cold drinking water. There's a city not too far away called Hierapolis. It was known for hot springs. Anybody ever sat in a hot spring? Anybody? We manufacture hot springs. We have hot tubs now. We just love to sit in them. They feel great. They're soothing. They're rejuvenating. They're relaxing. This city didn't have either option. And so what they had to do is they had to carry water down from the mountains and they used stone barrel pipes like this one. They carved it out and and the water would flow down, and you can imagine the sun would heat the stone, the stone heats the water, and by the time the water gets down to the city of Laodicea, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're parched, you take a big swig, and the water is like warm, and you just spit it out. And Jesus is saying, I wish you'd be one or the other. Be hot, be soothing, be rejuvenating. Or be cold and be refreshing. Serve a good purpose. But you're not serving anybody. You're not fulfilling any purpose. You're neither. And when I take an honest look at you, I go, I want to vomit. What do you think it was like to hear that? When I was 16, I'd been dating this girl for a number of months. And you you guys know how it goes in teenage romance. Somebody's got to break it off. And I wish I could tell you I'm the one who ended it. Well, I didn't end it. I didn't choose it. She ended it. And you know when you've been broken up with, and don't pretend like you've never been broken up with. You know when you've been, you're being broken up with, you're listening, you're like can, like, can I save this thing? Like, is it done, done? Or can I, can I save this right now? You know what I'm talking about? So I knew that it was done, done, and there was no fixing it when she said to me, when you drive up to my house to pick me up, I just feel sick to my stomach. Good times. <laughs> Appreciate the honesty. Jesus said to this church, I love you, not I love you, but I love you, and I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to tell you the truth. When I take an honest look at the way you live, what you're about, your purpose, your approach to life in church, I'm sick to my stomach. I want to spit you out, I want to vomit. And the irony here is that Jesus is the one who heals the sick. He's the miracle worker. He's the great physician. And he's the one feeling sick. What happened here? What went wrong in this church? What went wrong in this church that Jesus would say to them? I want to to throw up. He says, you say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Here's a little backstory on Laodicea. Before I tell you, let me ask you a question. Imagine there was a major national, just a natural disaster in our city and we had to rebuild. And the federal government offered us money to rebuild. Who's taking the money? Just me? I'm taking the money. You guys taking the money? All right. Laodicea experienced an earthquake. They had to rebuild. The Roman emperor offered them money and they said, no thanks, we're good. We're rich. We don't need your help. We can do it on our own. They were kind of prideful. It was a matter of pride that was just the city's attitude and culture, and that had become the church's attitude and culture. You couldn't tell the difference between the way the church was and the city was. And Jesus is saying, "You think you're pretty great. You think you're exceptional, you think you're special? You're not. You're kind of a house of cards. Spiritually, you've become bankrupt. You've lost your ability to see reality for what it is, and you are exposed, and it's shameful. I want you to write this down. How might this church have gotten there? Physical wealth makes it easy to forget spiritual poverty. Physical wealth makes it easy to forget spiritual poverty. I want you to imagine with me, we're going to do a man-on-the-street interview. you got a camera crew with you. We're just going to go, and we're going to interact with strangers on the sidewalk. We're going to ask them a question, and we're trying to figure out, how do people think of evangelical Christians in America? And so this is the question we're going to ask. Are you ready? We're going to ask people, what do you think evangelical Christians would say is the biggest problem in our country today? Now, don't shout your answer out loud, What do you think people would say? If we did a man on the street interview and we just asked him, what do you think evangelical Christians would say is the biggest problem in our country today? What do you think people would answer? I kind of think I know what people would say. And I think I have a list of things that I think people would not say. And I'd be surprised. I don't think people would say this. I don't think people would say evangelical Christians believe one of the biggest problems in our country today is greed. And yet Jesus had a reputation for being against greed and exploiting wealth and exploiting poverty. He had a reputation for being against excess. He had had a reputation for being against living for money. Is that our reputation? We know this. It was not the reputation of the church in Laodicea. And here's one of the reasons I think we ought to talk about that. It's because they they were wealthy, they were rich. We are too, we are. And maybe not everybody in this room is wealthy. Maybe not everybody watching online is wealthy. But from a global perspective, we're the rich folks. I mean, look around. Look at this building. We sit in a building in a property that we spent more than, over the years, $20 million on. We have a lot of comfort. And it's not wrong. Don't feel bad about it. See, being wealthy isn't wrong. Being rich isn't wrong. That's not a problem. It's not. So what's the problem? With wealth comes vulnerability. With wealth comes vulnerability. We're vulnerable to becoming self-centered, self-important, and self-reliant. Self-centered, self-important, self-reliant. Because when you have money and when you have stuff and you have resources and you have the kind of the abilities that we have, we're kind of used to getting our way. And we're used to getting our preferences and we're used to things being comfortable. And listen, it's not wrong to have wealth. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to be rich. But man, it comes with a vulnerability to being self-important, self-centered, and self-reliant. And it also comes with this. It just becomes really easy to overestimate our own abilities and overestimate our own opinions and our viewpoints. It just kind of comes with it. It's, It's a vulnerability. And this church... Laodicea, somehow they overestimated themselves and they underestimated the vulnerability that came with wealth. And eventually, over time, they became spiritually bankrupt and purposeless. So the question is, how does someone, how does that really happen? How does someone become spiritually Bankrupt? The famous author, Ernest Hemingway, once went bankrupt, and someone asked him, how did you go bankrupt? And I think his answer is awesome. It's probably the same answer for everyone. Ernest Hemingway, how did you go bankrupt? He said this, two ways, gradually, then suddenly. (laughs) Gradually, then suddenly. It probably happened that way with this church, Laodicea. Gradually. They didn't even realize it. sneaky. Their heart. Instead of being about their Savior, probably their allegiance, their affection was on their stuff, And instead of being about the agenda of Jesus, they were lulled into being about their own personal agenda and preferences. Gradually and then suddenly, they found they were bankrupt. But what I want us to hear, and I need you to be encouraged by this, I need you to hear this. Even though Jesus' honest assessment of them, looking at them, it turned his stomach. It did not turn his heart from them. Taking an honest look at them, it might have turned his stomach, but it did not turn his heart from them. He says this to them next, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. We can relate to this church. We can relate to this city. Uh, Laodicea uh, was known for medical care like our city is. They had a famous medical school. There were a couple of doctors who produced uh, ear ointment that they were known for or eye salve that they were were known for. And Jesus is saying, you want to see, listen, it's not going to come from yourself. Turn and look to me. So pay attention to this. I counsel you to buy... From me, gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. If any of you are thinking, I hear that, but it sounds kind of dumb, I think you're really paying attention. Like, if you're poor, can you afford to buy gold? That doesn't make sense, does it? Like, if you think this feels a little absurd, how, if you're poor, how do you buy wealth? You cannot spend your way out of bankruptcy. And that's the point. When we come to Jesus, the answer that we find does not come from looking within. The problem comes from looking within. The answer comes from looking up, turning to him, and we come to him with empty hands. All we have, all we have is the need of what you can give. We have nothing in ourselves. We are, not the, we are the problem. We are not the solution. So Jesus, we come to you in humility and eagerness to repent because you have what we need. We don't bring anything, and yet you give us everything. This is the kind of thing the famous author C.S. Lewis was trying to communicate in Mere Christianity when he talked about when a kid gives their dad a gift. and He's not sixpence; he's sixpence, none the richer. Check this out in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said it's like a small child going to its father and saying, "Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Give me a couple of bucks to buy you a birthday present." Of course, the father does, and he is pleased with the child's present. It's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. When a man has made these discoveries, God can really get to work. It's after this that real life begins. The man is awake now. And this rebuke from Jesus, it's about waking the church up. It's good to be awake. It's good to be awoken. That's not a bad word. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what does that mean? That means to be aware of what's wrong and aligned with what's right. Now, I get it. Being rebuked, not awesome, not fun. Does anybody like it? We don't like that. Like, you can't go to the grocery store and find a Hallmark card rebuking someone. Nobody's spending money on that. That might be a great card. Maybe you can start a business. Nobody likes to be rebuked. It doesn't feel good. Yeah, Maybe it should a little bit because a rebuke does not have to be a rejection. Really, it could be and it should be an expression of love. And every parent in this room knows it. Every grandparent, every aunt, uncle, whether that's you biologically or that's you relationally, you understand it. you got a precious child in your life and you care about them and they're making decisions that's not good for them, not good for things in their life, not good for people who love them and people who they love. You say, hey, that's not. this is not good for you. You cannot keep going that way. Like if you don't ever rebuke that precious child, you are not loving that child. It's the same way with Jesus to us. That's why Jesus says, those whom I, what? Those who I love. Those who I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Respond to my love. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. And they with me. We talked about this last week. I want you to write it down again this week. Jesus is always leaning in. He's always leaning in. That should never be in doubt. There should never be any question. Jesus is always leaning in relationally towards you. Jesus is always leaning in relationally towards our church. That's not in doubt. That's not a question. If there is a question, is which way are we leaning? Are you leaning towards him? Am I leaning towards him? Are we leaning towards him? And should we discover, should should we discover that our hearts have been hardened by pride? Should we discover that, you know what, kind of like the Laodiceans, that our hearts have been calcified around comfort? Should we find that that the concrete has said, and we're really about our agenda and not his agenda, if we find, you know what, that has become true of us, would we let our hearts be melted by his love for us and his desire to be with us? Craig Keener is a New Testament scholar and author. I love his perspective into this passage. He says this, Yet even when Jesus rebukes complacent, self-satisfied Christians... We must not miss his tone of voice. His cries of reproof flow not from irrational anger, but from a broken heart. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. Then he invites us. Then he invites us over for dinner if we will but open the door to him. God desires intimacy with us in the deepest recesses of our lives. Do you know that? Do you know that he desires intimacy with you in every aspect of your life? There are things about every culture that will give you an advantage in kind of understanding the gospel and the message of Jesus. And there are things in every culture that serve as a disadvantage to understanding the gospel and the things of Jesus. And there are some things in our culture that I think, at least for me, it's impacted me and served as a disadvantage. Here's something that's pretty common in our culture. We value productivity. We value getting things done. We value efficiency, don't we? Is there anything wrong with that? No, until you try to treat people that way. How many of you guys like for people to be efficient with you, to be quick with you, to be productive with you? That's That's not how relationship work. Maybe work works that way, but relationships don't work that way. I want you to know that Jesus' first response to you is to not look down and go, better get busy. Jesus says, this is your purpose. This is what I made you for, is to be with me and for me to be with you. That is what life is about. And there are beautiful things that flow out of that. There's activity that flows out of that. There's purpose that flows out of that. There's good work that flows out of that. But it begins simply with being with him and him being with us and us knowing him and him knowing us. I said it in the last service this way, not super proud of it. I wish I was more like Jesus. I'm the kind of person that when we're talking, I can look at my watch. But if you were in a conversation with Jesus, he would never look at his watch. He sees you. He wants to be slow with us. What we're doing right now is a good thing. I don't think we should ever stop our weekend services where we gather to sing. We hear teaching. We'll take communion together. We do things together. It's important. We should do it. But if this is the primary thing that defines your Christianity and your experience with Jesus, you're not going to get what I'm talking about because this is too quick, too hurried. What I'm talking about is slowing down, slowing down being with him. And it's not just poetic that he says, I want to eat with you. I'll eat with you when you eat with me. There's some ways in our culture that we get food right. Like I'm a big fan of the way we do barbecue in this country, not in Minnesota, but in other places. (laughs) Like there's some things we do about food that's right. But one of the ways that the culture that Jesus grew up in, one of the ways that cultures around the world kind of are just leveled up on us, is they do meals slowly. If you've ever been to India, if you've ever been to Africa, if you've ever been to certain parts of Europe, you'll slowly, they'll have a meal for three or four hours. And food is the context, but it's really about the other person and delighting in the people that you are with. And when Jesus says, I'm knocking on the door, would you open it? I'll come and eat with you, and you will eat with me. What Jesus is saying is let's slow down together. Let's delight in each other, and let's be with each other.